Hello and welcome to this episode of Human Rights Magazine. My name is Derek McCush. My guest today is William Chavis, the internationally respected expert on human rights law, genocide, and the death penalty. He is a professor of international law at Middlesex University in the United Kingdom and a professor of international law and human rights at Leiden University in the Netherlands. He has served on several human rights commissions and fact-finding missions and has written hundreds of articles on, on international law. To begin our conversation, I asked for his thoughts on conflict and how societies can prevent crimes against humanity. Okay, uh, something that, just before we do that, that I just would like to flag because it's been part of my work, um, is the issue of the right, what I call the human right to peace. And uh, this is uh, a subject that is quite, I think, quite controversial within the human rights field. And there are, um, you know, people in the field who don't think much of it, who don't think it belongs. And there is even within the human rights movement, I would say, um, a militarist streak uh, with which I'm not at all aligned, of course, but I, uh, it's, it's a source of, of, you know, dispute, debate, and so on that might also be interesting for your listeners to know a little bit about. But um, if, if you would like me to, to, to talk about the other subject, what, how, how should I start? Do you have a that's, that sounds like a, a very good place to start, actually. Um, do you want to go into that a little bit more? Yes, I'll, I'll tell you uh, more about it. I, I became particularly interested in this working uh, in the field of international, what we call international criminal law, which is about genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity, as well as the um, kind of an outlier in a way within the field, certainly in modern times, is what um, we call the crime of aggression and which at the time of the Nuremberg and Tokyo trials in 1945 and 46 was called crimes against peace. And crimes against peace was very much the, the, the glue that held together the charges uh, at the Nuremberg trial following the second world war. It was the idea that the atrocities committed by the Nazis um, were in some way associated with the broader wrong of waging an aggressive war. And in recent times, international criminal law, when it, it kind of revived after, after many years where um, we didn't have prosecutions until the, until the 1990s, after the Nuremberg and Tokyo trials, and when it revived in the 1990s, it was hard to get the crime of aggression into the into focus. So when the statute of the International Criminal Court was adopted in 1998, it didn't have a definition of the crime of aggression. It was a controversial matter. I remember going there. Uh, I was there with a Canadian-based uh, non-governmental organization, but I remember the delegations, including the Canadian delegation and others, were very, very lukewarm or indifferent to the idea of um, of aggression being included in the statute of the International Criminal Court. And it wasn't. It was set aside to be added later. And it was added, but in a very, very inadequate and, and uh, ineffective manner at a conference uh, in 2010. And when that happened, 
uh, two of the major human rights NGOs, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, um, said that they were they were quite indifferent to the issue of the crime of aggression um, because they said it wasn't really part of human rights law. And uh, I profoundly disagreed with that and uh, felt very strongly that we could find within within human rights law, within its within uh, texts like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, a recognition of the fact that peace is absolutely uh, fundamental for the protection of human rights. That you, you, I don't want to say that you can't protect human rights in wartime. There's a whole lot of litigation about human rights violations committed in time of war and the ability of human rights tribunals and, and other um, monitoring bodies to um, address conduct of war uh, using human rights norms to indicate violations and so on. But that's ultimately, human rights can only really be protected adequately with peace. And, uh, and the presence of war uh, is, is inimical to the, uh, to the protection of, of fundamental human rights. So I've tried to develop this and written this up and others. There, there was a campaign during the 19, during the, the, the 20 teens uh, that led to a, a United Nations General Assembly resolution recognizing the right to peace as a human right. But it was a controversial resolution and there were you know, states that didn't like it very much. Um, and as I say, it's, it's what's striking about it is that it's not just that there are some more conservative governments, I don't remember the list of them, but there are certainly some of them who aren't really very um, attracted to the idea, but there are also um, uh, important uh, components of the human rights movement. I've mentioned the two, two of the great international non-governmental organizations that, that, that don't get it as far as, I, as I, I'm concerned. Um, so that's really what I, I would like to say and share with you a little bit about, about the place of peace within human rights. It might seem, um, it might seem just straightforward to, to, uh, to everybody, but it, it, it's not the case when, when, when we drill down into human rights law and human rights activities to find the, uh, the controversy. Um, I think part of this has also been generated by uh, what I'd call a militarist streak in human rights, which manifests itself in the idea that the way you promote human rights is to use armed force. And uh, periodically, when there are serious violations, um, people say, well, what we need now is to have actual military intervention. And, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, I don't want to rule it out as being a, a, something that in an extreme case might be possible, but typically, uh, the calls for intervention are to countries with powerful armies that are not in a that, that do not have a good track record at protecting human rights or at making peace at all. I can name them if you want, uh, but it's the you know the obvious candidates, and I'm not talking about Russia here. I'm talking about uh, the United States and, and the United Kingdom and so on, and. Um, so I don't see them as saviors. I'm, I'm always reminded of, a, of a, a quote from the famous Irish writer, Brendan Behan, who said that uh, there's no amount of human suffering that can't be made worse by the presence of a policeman. And I sort of feel that way about powerful armies. 
Uh, I don't see them as a, as a coming to the rescue to protect human rights, but there are uh, there's a strong current of support for that within the human rights movement. Is there a difficulty in in defining what's meant by aggression? How to measure it? Yes. Well, the, the, there are straightforward uh, straightforward examples. That there is a definition now that's that's adopted. There's a definition that was adopted by the United Nations General Assembly back in 1974, after many years of work, and it lists a number of acts that are. Uh, deemed to be acts of aggression. It's not a. It's not an exhaustive list, and it leaves out um, some acts that are really very, very aggressive. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, of um, of what are what are called in in UN jargon unilateral coercive measures. These are uh, very, very oppressive uh, sanctions that are imposed on economies of countries um, in order to get them to. Uh, um, come to what to obey rules that other countries think they should obey. Um, and so, you know, again, these are the countries with very powerful economies who are in a position to inflict a great deal of, of pain on other countries. And these are um, measures that are not, they don't involve a physical uh, force, but they can have terrible consequences um, in a country that is, that is choked off because of these sanctions. Now, sanctions are recognized. They were an important thing when, for example, to, to help to bring down the apartheid regime in South Africa. But these were sanctions that were imposed and authorized by the United Nations through the processes of the United Nations. But we have a whole other side of it. And, and this is these are forms of aggression that don't involve strict, you know, it's pressure. Uh, that doesn't involve uh, military force, but it does, in effect, encroach on the sovereignty of, of countries. Um, the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court has its own definition of what the crime of aggression. So the distinction here is that not all acts of aggression are crimes of aggression. Um, the crime of aggression, an international crime, is something that would be subject to prosecution by an international court. And so the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court says that it's uh, it's an act of aggression that constitutes a manifest violation of the Charter of the United Nations. So um, lawyers and judges can't make any sense of what it means to say a, non, a manifest violation of the Charter of the United Nations. So I don't know how a non-lawyer would sort that one out. But it's it's the idea that there's a there's a, a scale of 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 acts of aggression that are you know of gravity that there are relatives relative gravity so um you know uh, a skirmish on the border involving the use of armed force might you know wouldn't be of the same order as an, an, an occupation of a territory uh, followed by annexation which would be considered one of the more ultimate forms of aggression one of the other things that's curious about this is that the crime of aggression um, according to the uh, Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, is reserved to leaders. It's a crime that can only be committed by leaders, people who are in a position of authority to direct the armed forces of the country. And it's kind of a bizarre um, contradiction with the general rule that we have for these international crimes, that individuals 
are responsible for their acts and that uh, that saying you were ordered to do something uh, by a superior is not an excuse um, you know before a court some of the some of the Nazis who were prosecuted in in various post second world war trials you know famously said well I was only following orders and the answer from the judges was you know that's not a, a defense if you were committing an act that was manifestly contrary to 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 human to, to humanity to, to to fundamental norms then it's not an excuse to say you were ordered to do it you're supposed to refuse such an order but we do this when it comes to aggression we say we don't say that we say no we're, we're not going to put that responsibility on it i think that's wrong i think it's unfortunate I, I people say well but how can you expect soldiers to know that uh that they're committing uh of, of you know an act contrary to international law and my answer is it's usually not very technically difficult to know that they most soldiers in most armies never go into the never set foot in another country anyway it's only a very limited number of armies that think they have the right to go into other countries it's not a hard rule to teach soldiers say you know you can you can fire your gun in self-defense on your own territory but if you're going to go into someone else's territory, you know, make sure you have a blue helmet on and you have a UN Security Council resolution authorizing it. So this is, you know, part one of the other. I think it, it's a it it um, is characteristic of the problem of uh, identifying this crime of aggression and the acts of aggression and putting them into international law. And there's a very it's a very very imperfect regime compared with things like war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide, where we have a lot more certainty about what, what's a violation. Um, it's much more straightforward to be able, we have a lot of trials, we have a lot of prosecutions, we have a lot of precedents that clarify what that means. But with aggression, it's, it's, there, there are mysteries about it. You cover a lot of territory. Let's shift to talking about the right to peace and, and, and shift to more what positive or proactive aspects are needed, even in the absence of formal recognition under international human rights law, what is needed to identify and bring into reality uh, uh, the right to peace? Well, you know, the part of it that I do, which is mainly about using international mechanisms to promote it, uh, involves, uh, first of all, getting the getting agreements with countries that these are rules and principles that they have to follow, that they implement them in their national law. And uh, I think ultimately it's down to public opinion, people um, understanding that first of all, how, how extreme it is to use armed force and, and you know, resisting the militarization that, that that many countries are engaged in with armies larger than what they need, weapons that serve that that are are not designed for defensive purposes, military alliances. Now everybody's talking about about NATO and NATO's role in Eastern Europe and whether NATO should expand. My own view is that with the end of the Cold War 30 years ago, NATO should have been disbanded. You shouldn't have military alliances in a world that's governed by the Charter of the United Nations and the prohibition of the use of force for um, uh, to settle disputes. 
One of the other things that we need to settle disputes, it's very important, are very effective mechanisms for settling disputes peacefully uh, between states. The, the way we do it in ordinary life, when two people have an argument, they're not supposed to pull out guns and settle it with a duel. They're, they're supposed to go and they go to court and they set out their case and they accept the judgment of the court. We have some of that. You know, we have... Uh, we have the, the World Court, the International Court of Justice, that is there to serve that purpose. And it's a marvelous um, institution for that reason. I've, I've had the honor of uh, appearing in that court on a few occasions um, as a lawyer. And I, I, I'm in awe of, it, of the institution because, because of what it stands for. It's, it's called the Peace Palace, which is an interesting, it's an interesting name for a court. We think that a court should be in a justice palace. It should be in the, and, and in many languages, we'll call it the Palace of Justice. But the World Court in The Hague is in the Palace of Peace. And, and that's because it's there to settle disputes that in the past would be settled by arms. So it's not very well known, but in July of 1914, as the, you know, the crisis, the July days that led to the terrible First World War was sort of spinning out of control, there was a proposal to, to let's go to this new court. It actually formally hadn't been established, but the building, which was built by the, the Scottish-American millionaire, Andrew Carnegie in The Hague, was, had been completed the year before and it was there. So there was this idea that was, was very new in the world in 1913 and 1914 that we settled a dispute peacefully before judges. And so there was a proposal that Serbia and Austria go before the, a, a court that would be then set up for that purpose to settle their dispute. But some of the people, particularly the, the German emperor, really wanted a battle. He wanted a fight. He wanted to use his little, you know, his toys, his military toys. And frankly, the other side was kind of interested in doing the same. So, so 20 million deaths later, you know. Is there anything else you'd like to, to cover before we wrap up? Um, well, no, I think I don't. I'm not sure how long I've gone on, but I've given you some of my my think my thoughts about about peace and and how to how to deal with it. And it's a it's a it's a dimension of it that probably not not that many people are very familiar with, but it's out there, and it's part of the campaign for 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 global peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Human Rights Magazine. The podcast is brought to you by the Upstream Journal. I invite you to consider supporting the program and the magazine with a contribution through PayPal as you explore other episodes.